Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by Terry Robinson today, and we are going to bring you another episode of Tomes of Magic. And today we're going to look at tradition book Hollow Ones for revised edition. Before we get into it, though, Terry, do you have any announcements for us? I do. I used some of the pennies I collected from nice and handsome people who are likely intelligent and charismatic. That is to say, people who brought, bought copies of Ascension's Landscape on DriveThruRPG. Um, and I got some of the posters that DriveThruRPG sells. Uh, one is called Ascend, and it's uh, one of the pieces of Christopher Shy artwork that I'm particularly fond of. And you can also get posters of all the, uh, the chapter opener art that I think is William Kaluta from M20. And I got this stack of posters and they're two bucks a pop. So like not exactly wallet breakers in terms of what they cost. It may have been $3. They're like 12 by 18 or something like that. And I got them and they send them to you folded over. And um, I'm like, wow, these look great. This is, I was surprised at how good the print quality is considering that this is $3 or less. And I got the stack and I put them down and there was a little bit of a bump in the middle and I just kind of tried to even out the crease. And now every one of them has this nice little thing across the center where I tried to get rid of that. So uh, you botched that role. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> I failed my, what would that be? Dexterity plus knowing how paper works role. I'm not quite sure what system in uh, in one e that was probably its own secondary ability, <laughs> booksmanship or something like that. But yeah, I, I'm pleased to report that the posters through Drive to RPG are pretty great. Be careful trying to get the bump out, and that is the closest thing I have to an announcement. <laughs> okay. Well, this book was put out in 2002. Uh, like all of the tradition books for revised edition, it clocks in at 100 pages. And if the typeface has to be changed to make that page count, so be it. But uh, <laughs> this one was written by Angel McCoy and Todd McDivitt. Get a, uh, a good look at the Hollow Ones. This is the only, or, the only book so far that has been published that focuses only on the Hollow Ones and not other orphans or other uh, individual rogue types of the world of darkness. We get just the hollow ones on this book. I'm ready for a walkthrough. Let's uh, hear a little about what is in this book. The prologue is entitled Birthday. It is about a person who returns to some sort of flop house and everyone is dead. Okay, that's a way to start a story. And the person thinks that somebody is coming for them and is rescued by unknown people. And you're like, wow, what's going to happen here? And then it very quickly becomes not exciting. So the, the chapter introduction is Prometheans Unbound, and it tells us that the Hollowers tend to be one of the only postmodern groups in that they have a skepticism of everyone else's narrative, which I think is super useful because the Hollow Ones, to me, are one of kind of two groups in Mage that are explicitly postmodern, the other one kind of being the syndicate in their belief that they just want to manipulate desire. They really don't care what someone is desiring. They just want to manipulate it and make money off of it and give them influence. So I really like the idea that there is that that contrast in Mage. And one day I will write my hollower slash syndicate book for the Storyteller Vault, but but that's, that's going to be out in the distance. The hollowers tend to be either very avant-garde or remarkably retro, that their group claims that uh, the most important thing is self-expression. The theme of the book is eternal romance, that they are the last true capital R romantics out there. And the book goes into that in great detail. And the mood listed is the tragedy of fate, 
which I thought was interesting because one of the perpetual themes in Mage is this existential notion of freedom that you can change the world. So to start with the tragedy of fate kind of makes me go, are they saying that they're they're kind of screwed from the start? They are the defenders of a dying faith who feel lonely and beset by fate, which I think would go for almost literally every tradition. Chapter one starts off with history. And uh, one of the interesting departures this book takes is it takes its time. From the best of my understanding, both Angel McCoy and Tad McDivitt are people with a background in writing fiction, and that shows through. The The prose that is used to explain the world is is well-written. It's it's fine fiction. The setting information and so on is, is perfectly well-written, and it is somewhat leisurely to get to it. So, for instance, in this chapter one, when they're going over history, it is 2,300 words, which is to say about four pages, before we get any information on the actual history. And a lot of it is set up and the character Mark, who was rescued, just kind of being walked through their new experience of the world. And the history section is interesting because it is not quite chronological. We don't get like, long ago in the dim ages, there was the first person wearing too much mascara to indicate that they have this age-old tradition. But they do say that the group very much harkens back to the origins of romantic stories, uh, the idea of, of knights and ladies in distress and castles and so on. And they consider themselves the heir to the people who believed that those stories had power. They claim to be the, uh, the living embodiments of romance, and they trace that back to the Middle Ages for some vague definition of kind of Middle Ages. For a while, when they were first about to form, so in the late 1800s before they kind of formally existed, they referred to themselves as artists with a capital A as a way of identifying mages. And I thought that was kind of interesting that you would have a conversation with someone and be like, oh, are you an artist? And the other person would be like, yes. And both of you would put like the pinkies to the corner of your mouth and you would giggle because you were both mages or something like that. They considered the romantic movement in the 19th century to be a reaction to the restraint of the classical movement, which set about copying Greek statuary and forms and so on. Uh, The classical era was a little bit more freeform than that, but uh, there were certainly people that were running around with calipers trying to perfectly uh, copy the ancient masters. With the Victorian age, though, social revolution was kind of on the table, and ultimately characters like Oscar Wilde kind of act as a martyr to demand that society open up a little bit. In the United States, at the close of the 19th century, the West is closing. We no longer have this infinite frontier, seemingly. Uh, The Civil War has erupted. A South has become Gothic, and we get the first hints of Southern Gothic being a form, which is interesting because Southern Gothic, to me, is partially defined by its lack of supernatural elements. As we roll into the great wars of the early and mid 20th century, the Hollerists claim that media has tried to make people numb to the casualties, that as war gets bigger, there are fewer and fewer heroes. And they claim that a large escalation between the tradition and the technocracy occurred in World War One, as the technocracy tried to downplay as much the horrors of war and the traditions tried to play it up. That the group known as the Hollowers kind of started as a response to the growing callousness, but not necessarily as a way of fighting it, but to kind of escape it. That after the World Wars, there was a drug war between the technocracy who kind of advocated numbing drugs like Valium and so on, and traditions who were pushing things that were unnumbing, as it were. An interesting thing about the Hollowers is that many of them are still around. They were founded by the six vanguards in the early 20th century, and that 
San Francisco kind of came became their base during World War II. Uh, they formed the Way Down, which is a a place that we have heard a lot of other information about throughout the other books. Uh, they lost a founder kind of to the Nafandi under what seemed to be vague circumstances. I'm another founder that just isn't around anymore. But now they're in every major city, which is amazingly fast for mages, considering they started with six people. And in previous books, we talked about how the Hollowers seem to be very North America-centric. And one of the things this book does is presents that the Hollowers are now in a lot of other places. It also suggests that sometime they used to have great uh, horizon realms, and now they seem to mostly just have like bolt hole hideaways. And I don't know about you, Adam, but I would have loved information on a giant hollower realm. Like, what what does that even look like? I don't think we see that anywhere. We never got that information. Yeah, I, I, I concur. There was uh, the Orphan Survival Guide, and then there was the Outcasts book. And they those books were in the, the first two editions of Mage. They both treated with hollow ones, but you're right. They, they did not say, hey, let's look at a hollow one horizon realm or, or some realm in the Umbra that the hollow ones have taken to. Uh, there's passing mentions to some of that, but yeah, we don't really get it. It would have been fun. Yeah, that would be great, though, if the book's literally entitled Orphan Survival Guide. They're like, here's how to have your own horizon realm. And you're like, okay, that's that's up there. <laughs> Hops around the world to talk about different hollower locations. Uh, they control a coffee shop in Paris. There's a hotel in Italy. There's a cathedral uh, in England that has its own network of caves. Rio de Janeiro has a strong hollower presence where there are two hollower groups within the city that kind of fight each other strongly along class lines. There's a, a hollower set up in Cologne, Germany. In Moscow, they tend to look like vampires. And then we get a few kind of other notes at the end of the chapter where they talk about hollower avatars tend to be more circumspect, but they provide cravings. And I can only think of the word craving in the context of somebody marketing fast food to me. So like, I just picture the big fight. Like we've talked about Witterslauncha avatars that are like, no, 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 you should totally kill your enemy. In this case, it is somebody like getting ready for their evening hollower ball and their avatar just goes up to him and goes, you should start the evening with an Arby's roast beef sandwich. And it's like, no, avatar, I don't have to listen to you or something like that. Or that, that was the first thing I thought about. Maybe I'm the only one who associates the word cravings with Arby's. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I think of uh, I think of similar things. It's like, okay, now what goes with this outfit? I'm going to go out and meet the other Halloween's pickles. Yeah. You really want pickles? <laughs> what the heck? Shut up, Avatar. <laughs> My Avatar is, is more on the salty than the sweet side. They also make mention that one of the important fronts in the Ascension War, at least for the Hollowers, is the idea that just the notion of romance may not be enough and that they tend to pull horror and the Gothic into their aesthetic. They mentioned that the technocracy may be coming for Clive Barker. I thought that was an interesting line. I believe in you, Clive. And that the Hollower is on a journey of self-discovery but in a seemingly uniform way. And my quote at the end, we'll get to that. Um, and that kind of wraps up chapter one, which is a little bit of history, a lot of mood, and some information on how to use plants to transmit poetic meaning. I thought it was interesting how they took the, I guess you would say, signature characters or you know, the pre-existing characters from older editions of Mage for the Hollow Ones, in this case, uh, Neville Sinclair, Penny Dreadful, and they reintroduced them. Uh, that was seemed appropriate. However, the old portrayal of Penny Dreadful, I mean, she was just so nice. I would just love to sit down for tea with, with the old Penny Dreadful. The new Penny Dreadful was a little different, less 
friendly, rather a different portrayal of this character. I, I would not be at the same table for tea with her unless I was ready for uh, a serious ribbing. Um, <laughs> Neville Sinclair has taken on a new name, I guess. He's called ne- Neville Nevermore now. And sometimes they say Neville Sinclair Nevermore, which is rather a mouthful for me. I got to be honest, Neville Nevermore, it really sounds like a little kid TV show and not a terribly good one. I have a hard time getting behind calling him that with a straight face. As a, as a storyteller, I don't think I could pull that off. I, I think I would lapse back to Neville Sinclair. I'd wind up calling him Nev Nev when no one was looking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now that you say that, I'm never going to forget that when I think of this character. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. <laughs> but but yeah, you're right. Nev Nev. It's like someone would call him that for a nickname. It says that it, this is the first time that we get this notion that not only do some hollowers have a, a connection to romance with a capital R, but it says that that all of them do in this book. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I think I really can picture a hollow one or, or a group of hollow ones or a movement, whatever, within that group that really is not connected to romance. So I'm not sure if that's the, if I would portray them that way as a storyteller. And also when they say romance, it, in my mind that equates to emotion. We, we are the people who really take our emotions seriously and really dive into it. And that's, on the one hand, a little vague for me as a storyteller. It's, it's hard for me to run with that ball. And on the other hand, I cannot stop thinking of the Toreadors from Vampire the Masquerade. It's like, oh, the, the Toreadors, they're, they're here in Mage now. Oh, okay, didn't see that one coming. But it's like the Toreadors walked into Mage all of a sudden for me. But uh, that's, I'm sure that's just my problem. Um, the history section is unusual in every edition of Mage because we, we get all this history history and it has nothing to do with any mages at all uh, it's just history of of the world and by the way we think this about it and then like at the the very very end it's like oh and and here now we've got some hollow ones and so that that was really hard for me when i get history of the world sections in any edition of mage i think oh the, here's how some mages kind of worked into history maybe it wasn't this mage group maybe it was some mages that they took their influence from etc but to get just straight up sleeper history and then commentary on it and then now let's move on it's like th- that's very different for me the first time i've seen that Neville Sinclair was taken down a peg in in this. Uh, I thought that, I always think it's interesting how revised edition takes signature characters that have been around from previous edition of Mages, and some they elevate, and some they 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 don't quite elevate. Uh, in the past, Neville Sinclair was was very influential. He was a pioneer. He stood up to non Hollow One Mages and said, "No, we're we're here and we're important too." And he started so much for the Hollow Ones. In this book, it says. Yeah, he started some stuff, but really it was his friends that, that did so many things. And he's not as important or influential as uh, he used to be. So, you know, just as a mage fan, this is a highly organized presentation of the Hollow Ones. The, by far the most organized take on them I have ever seen. I have always read in every previous portrayal of them that they're quite disorganized. They, they go their own way. Sometimes they can kind of reach a consensus for a time and, and move in a certain direction, but it's only for a time. In this one, we get a roll call. All the hollow ones show up and Neville says, okay, places, you're going to do this. You're going here. You're going to do this. Here's your job. Everybody, and he snaps his fingers. Now go. And everybody's like, okay, we're going now. It's like, this is a very different view of the hollow ones. And last off, the, the way down was mentioned since early first edition mage times that was the cool place where the hollow ones go and as you know the books proceeded uh, we get to see that it was a 
small, uh, low-powered horizon realm that they used you know, periodically, you know, quite small, like the size of a big room, basically. It, it certainly wasn't overpowered or, or ridiculous, but, but it was fun, and it was interesting. They could do some cool stuff with it. And now we see that the way down is quite different. Uh, there, there's no umbral anything. It is a warehouse that they have decorated. And I, I kept thinking of like a high school prom night. You take this yes. ugly gym, you, you put up some streamers, <laughs> and you say, this is where the cool kids come, and you walk in and say, is it? Really? Maybe for tonight? So the way down is quite different here. Not not quite as fun or as, as interesting for me. But, you know, Revised Edition has, has some things going on in the background. And, and I can understand it. I'm certainly not going to ridicule it. But it's just less fun for me as a Mage fan. But I do always like when we talk about Horizon Realms. And you're like, how big is Horizon? And you're like, well, it's technically infinite. Then why is your Horizon Realm the size of a broom closet. It's like, well, it's the only thing I could afford, and it was rent-controlled, so it was cheap, and you're like, I got it from my <laughs> uncle. And you're like, oh, okay. So chapter two, the hollower paradigm. Paradigm section talks through not just magical paradigm, but worldview, which I certainly appreciate. And they talk about how some hollowers feel compelled to protect mortals, and the technocracy may be okay with hollowers that generally operate in that we are going to protect mortals from the worst of things. We're going to mostly deal with the Nefandi or with vampires or so on, which they repeatedly say, yes, we are Gothic. Yes, they are kind of the embodiment of Gothic. Do we get along? Not really, which I, I like. One of the things that Revised does that I appreciate is it's like, yes, you can run a World of Darkness Super Friends game, but that either needs to be well thought out, incredibly rare, or it needs to go horribly. And <laughs> I appreciate the honesty of like, yes, we wear dark clothing. Yes, we really like Anne Rice novels. No, we don't like vampires. They literally consume humans to perpetuate their state of stasis. And I'm like, okay, that's good. I like this. They also mentioned that the Hollowers have never really had masters in the traditional sense. They never really had a traditional master-apprentice relationship. Um, Sphere-wise, it is kind of impressive that a lot of the characters are actually quite potent in terms of magical capability. So when the Avatar Storm struck and a lot of groups lost their access to their masters, the Hollowers were able to be like, okay, this is how you learn magic on their own, which again, I thought is an interesting idea and I would have liked to have seen any evidence anywhere else that that had happened. Hey, you get one book to work with. Additionally, the Avatar Storm has resulted in the traditions reconsidering the role of the Hollowers and the Hollowers themselves are split on do we want to be the lost tradition and join or something like that? Or do we want to double down and be like, ah, you, you didn't like us when you were on top. And now that you've been kicked in the face, you want us to be part of your club. Screw yourself, buddy. And they mentioned that they do not like the master apprentice relationship because it tends to breed dogma. Some of the elder hollowers think the trappings of modern goths were forged by the syndicate. And I just liked that, especially because I picture a get together involving an elder hollower just like referring to some new up-and-coming kid as a syndicate shill and i mean that's an insult that you get to use in mage so i think that's kind of cool and then they have a meditation on what the term hollow in hollow one mean the first use that they mentioned kind of draws back to the t.s Eliot poem and it was an offhanded response that i think neville had to someone asking uh, what are you and it becomes a question of so what does hollow mean to you and i like the fact that they bring up a number of interpretations it could be they believe that they are soulless, which causes some people to dabble in infernalism, and that never ends well in the world of darkness. Others interpret it as a zen-like no-mind state of having room for other things. Others refer it 
as a way of having been cleared out of the experience because of the death of romance and that you have a muted inner life so you dress in dark colors and so on to convey that but it gives you a a bunch of options the next part is uh, factions and cliques which are uh, essentially the groups within the hollow ones uh adam can you tell us about those First off, uh, Hollow Ones have three outlooks and many cliques. An outlook is a general point of view, not a coherent group. Uh, cliques equate to methodologies or, or sects for other mage factions. The first outlook is the counselors. They believe the Council of Nine is closer to a proper understanding on life than other mage groups. Counselors want to guide tradition mages toward a better understanding of the world and magic and then join with them to oppose the technocracy and Nefandi marauders. The second outlook is the revolutionaries. They believe all non-Hollow One mage groups are equally wrong. Revolutionaries believe they should recruit more members and move forward without the cooperation of other mage groups. The third outlook doesn't actually have a name. These Hollow Ones don't have a vision for changing the world and are through with ideologies. They don't propose goals for others and want to be left out of other people's grand plans. Now let's uh, take a look at the cliques. We have uh, the elemental cliques. These are groups that have five members, and each represents an element. Some follow a Western model of earth, air, fire, water, spirit. Others are Eastern, fire, water, air, wood, metal. Uh, Members usually change elements to avoid getting into a rut. Different elements encourage insights into different spheres of magic, as well as different responsibilities uh, to the clique. Elemental cliques develop a pack mentality and develop group rituals. Dynamic avatars are common. We have the pantheistic cliques. Members work at becoming possessed by their own avatars. Primordial avatars are common here, so when group members become possessed during rituals, the result is a group of mages that can work together efficiently. Whether these hollow ones are really channeling their avatars or developing a group quiet is up for debate. These mages become quite dependent on each other over time, due to over-specialization. We have the Incognitos. This group is dedicated to bringing down the technocracy, but do not attack themselves because, let's face it, that would be dangerous. They carefully monitor all sources of information and form plans that increase tension between groups inside the technocracy, especially the five conventions of the technocracy. Paranoia often develops, and that's why other hollow ones keep an eye on the Incognitos. We have the Vodun uh, Gangstas, This clique uh, began near New Orleans during the American Prohibition. They helped run bootleg alcohol, not for profit, but for resistance to authority. Most members are of African-American descent, uh, primarily Vodun practitioners in the early days. Members are now influenced by many African tribal influences. They live out the romantic image of gangsters as they use modern weapons to oppose those who would exploit the underprivileged. We have the Soundwave Masters. This clique uses modern music and the events attached to it in their magic. They spread messages for the Hollow One Network called the Hollow Railroad. Members also gather info for the Hollow Railroad by mentally sifting through their audiences. Sympathetic towards the traditions, most members cooperate with virtual adepts and cultists of ecstasy. We have the Railroad Riders. Started in Britain in the 1970s, this group carries messages for the Hollow Railroad Network. Constantly traveling and risking paradox with their folding of space, members are dedicated to keeping the communications flowing. They are known for developing many of the secret survival routes popular among hollow ones. We also have these social terrorist punk cells. These hollowers take anarchy seriously and never gave up on the punk ethos. They won't stop the fight against the technocracy and pursue it personally. Members rarely last long as paradox and violent conflicts end their lives. Other hollow ones tend to avoid them. Uh, gee, I wonder why. We have the moles. 
These hollow ones give up their lifestyles and personal statements to go deep undercover in the technocracy. They pose as rank and file of technocratic locations to pass information back to other hollow ones. Uh, we have the outsiders. Uh, these hollow ones, mostly revolutionaries, prefer the company of other creatures of the world of darkness. Gaunts make allies of wraiths and as a result pass a lot of intelligence to other hollow ones. Mangers spend time with werewolves and other shapeshifters. Most of them are kinfolk to were-creatures and focus on the spirit sphere. Uh, called bloodbags by others, uh, these hollow ones pursue relationships with vampires. They tend to congregate in a few large cities. They avoid becoming ghouls, but still tend to have short lives, and Terry told us why. Hollow ones who pursue relationships with the Fae are labeled glamour whores and all too often are manipulated by changelings into trying to live in a dream world. While some hollow ones admire the blood bags, none admire the glamour whores. I very much picture a game literally having the line, Chelsea, no one admires a glamour whore. <laughs> and I, we get some information about their politics and what it's like being a member. They talk about how they insult new members to make them stronger to shield them from the outside world, which to me is kind of bullshit. Like, yeah, we beat you up in the locker room to toughen you up, not because we're terrible people. <laughs> there's there's a lot of ways to toughen a person up that doesn't give them like long-running emotional scars. Just putting that out there. <laughs> Anytime you do something that makes you feel better as a person and claim it's for someone else's benefit and it involves abuse, that's not a good thing. It's called abuse. They do mention an interesting phenomenon where they say you need to become numb to the outside world and that members that try and actually get in the good graces of other people are just orphans wearing black. Wow. So like it, it is now amazing that they are so insult based, but remarkably unified i really need more information on how you connect one to the other like is there a point where they stop insulting you and you're officially a member like i kind of got the idea that they continue to talk to each other somewhat harshly and that they get together periodically to trade information and be snarky at one another with that we get to the actual like magical portion of paradigm where they talk about the foci that they use um that makeup is a way to focus and ready yourself and can be used for mind that you're literally putting on a face for more information on foci if you find that this description isn't quite enough james sombrano uh, did a wonderful rundown of hollower magic in our episode on the hollower paradigm i'll include that in our show notes that clothing is also important that a set of garments can make up an outfit and that they mention that your clothing can be your true name and that they are your identity and form a prime focus i very much could picture somebody like burning a set of t-shirts to open a node to be like here is every band t-shirt i accumulated between 1988 and 2014 and i will use this to consecrate a new node and people were like whoa that is truly a sacrifice of yourself i was never the band t-shirt guy but i totally get people who are so i sympathize with it i don't quite get it but i understand that it's important to other people tattoos they list as a very particular thing that they can serve as any number of focuses and kind of lists what a person has done i would have loved more information about about how hollowers accumulate tattoos and maybe a hollower tattoo language. They do make mention that it is often tied to spheres, which I thought was kind of interesting. They give a few recommendations. I would have liked a little bit more. They mentioned that they like jewelry. No spheres are given. I hope that is just an aside to say, oh no, hollowers like jewelry. They also believe strongly in what they refer to as the symbolic trinket. This and the next category, pop occultism, to me kind of blend together that this is how hollowers will generally do something involving sympathetic magic, where one set of 
symbols is established for the hollower and it is difficult to change. And that set of symbols doesn't necessarily need to tie to a larger culture as long as it makes sense to the hollower. Alternatively, you have the pop occultism route where you are taking advantage of existing correspondences in other cultures or other beliefs to then change the world. And they talk about the importance of tarrowing, of seances, of spiritual channeling, of using spell books, uh, runes, astrology, and other things that are kind of in the pop psyche in terms of ways of doing magic. And that they tend to have animal familiars and they give recommendations for those, uh, generally small creatures that can go with you. I appreciate that some books include that familiar section. Nothing is going to beat the Akashiana section where it's like, favored familiars. These people like grasshoppers. These people like tigers. And you're like, okay, we got a spectrum going on here. And then we get the root section where we get a bunch of what I thought were not bad rotes. A lot of them require a lot of spheres for seemingly no reason. Like, for instance, they talk about a whole bunch of ways of getting money, which I like. I, I think that needs to be in Mage somewhere. And I think one of the real fun things about Mage as a game is the escapism of being able to say, I'm literally going to do this magical effect and have a lot of money because of it. I have always interpreted Entropy 1 Matter 1 as being able to identify like winning lottery tickets as such. And here it gives you a bunch of other ways to do that, whether it be using time magic to restore vintage things. And I, I do like the fact that antiquing is very is very big in the hollower worldview. Cup of Joe and mixtape are both ways of moving quintessence around. In one case, you kind of make a mixtape that has the ability to transfer quintessence around. And, and Cup of Joe is, a, is another rote that kind of allows you to have a, a, a pick-me-up through this ritual. Overall, the line between vulgar and coincidental was kind of messy to me. It states the logic, which I appreciate. So as a storyteller, I can say, eh, I think in my chronicle, this would be coincidental. Or eh, in this chronicle, I think this would be vulgar. They do another thing that also happened in the Euthanatoy book that I really appreciated, where they go through a whole bunch of rotes that tie to a particular magical practice. And here we get a lot of information on the, the gaunts that interact with wraiths. And they give you a, a set of undead rotes that allow you to create a temporary haunt or create a temporary fetter, which to me is very potent. The ability to create fetters and haunts are, are quite useful to wraiths. A fetter is an is a tie to the mortal world, which allows them to persist in the Shadowlands and that they can also inhabit them, uh, kind of sleep in them to gain back some of their power. Likewise, a haunt is kind of a protected place that allows them to uh, renew themselves. And to me, that is that is quite potent and would be super great as a justification for a crossover chronicle, but again, could border on the whole Super Friends phenomenon if you don't find a way to do it, where you're like, oh, we're going to have the werewolf take care of the, the werewolfy bits, and we're going to have the mage take care of the magey bits, and one of the recurring themes is the good guys can't cooperate in, in um, Old World of Darkness. We get information on Oniromancy, and we get a two rotes on that. One is Dream Play, where you get to make a play, and another one is called Running Scenarios, which requires Entropy 2, Mind 4, Time 2, basically just gives you access to the dream background, which you need to already have. So I'm not sure what this wrote brought to the party. Some books have writers that really key on the magic system, others not so much. There's a lot of interesting ideas here. I'm just saying that you will probably need to refine it a little bit to fit into your chronicle. Towards the early part of the chapter, it repeats the idea that hollow ones as a group uh, don't have a lot of common goals. They don't have a lot of common organization. Uh, this is repeated from, from previous books that dealt with the hollow ones, and so I understood that. But then it sharply contrasts with the portrayal of hollow ones in fiction in chapter one. 
And so, yeah, reading chapter one and then reading chapter two, it's like, okay, this is a bit of a, a mismatch inside the book. But the chapter two material on, you know, they don't uh, have so much organization, that, that certainly makes sense in, in light of what I've read about uh, Hollow Ones in the past. It seems to me that Hollow Ones would be defined more by the city they live in and the cabal that they belong to, which in this book, clicks are... an the hollow one term for cabal, but they are also the hollow one term for sect or, you know, methodology, like uh, internal group. And so it's like, okay, that's confusing. A click is not a click, but sometimes a click is a click is a click is a, I'm confused. I would like two different terms for this. But, but anyways, my point is um, hollow ones seem to be defined more by their city and their cabal. And I have a hard time seeing how hollow ones would be very active with uh, what they call a a clique, like an internal faction that might be like nationwide or worldwide or something, because hollow ones seem to be very much into these are the people I'm with, this is the city I'm in, this is what I'm doing here. And if, if hollow ones are rising up against the technocracy across the nation, connecting in with that uh, seems a little harder for me to figure out as, as a storyteller in light of what I have read here. Um, I think it's interesting that they say young hollow ones have bigger reputations than older hollow ones because older hollow ones have learned subtlety. Uh, they have learned not to be so prideful. They have learned not to paint big targets on their chest when there are enemies out there and other things like that. And so it's like, yeah, this actually gives some flavor to me. This this kind of makes sense. Like the, the the younger hollow ones are like, hey, I'm the big guy. Listen to what I can do. Listen to what I've done. And the older hollow ones are like, Nope, I'm, I'm nobody. Don't worry about me. I'm just yep. going to stand over here and let them shoot at you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought that was very clever. It, it gave some flavor to me, and I would like to deal with that as a storyteller. On page 55, there's sort of a brief aside. Uh, they make an interesting parallel with Akashic Brotherhood, and that is that the hollow ones, when they try to define what does hollow mean to me, the truth can't be named or taught. You have to find it within yourself. It's like, Actually, that, that does sound rather zen, and I'm not saying that's bad or good. It's just, it's just interesting how, how some ideas can, can break out of one box and, and be found in, in other groups. On, on the same page, 55, uh, they talk about how hollow ones recognize others as actually being hollow ones instead of just you know, wannabes and hangers-on and so on. And I find that hard to understand, actually. They say if, if we recognize you um, as, as being you know, smart and, and not a, a pain in the rear— then, then we'll accept you as one of our own. But it's like, at, at what point do you reach that? I mean, there's there's hazing, and the old ones want the younger ones to be more independent so that they're more hands-off. And it's like, I think after reading this book, the only thing I can come to grips with is a hollow one is recognized as a hollow one by others when they are accepted into a cabal that was previously recognized. The cabal is recognized as these are level-headed, smart people who aren't going to, you know, screw the pooch. And so uh, if he's a member of them, then we recognize him as one of ours. But then you get into other problems of, okay, we've got the elemental cliques. We've got five members, only five, no more, no less. And so if you've got five hollow ones in, um, you know, a medium-sized American or Canadian city, there's not going to be a whole lot more mages in there. And so it's like a hollow one comes in, and it's like, yeah, I've proved I'm a decent hollow one. They're like, yes, we can't accept you into our clique. We've already got five members, so you're on your own, and you can't be recognized as a hollow one unless you're a part of a recognized clique, so I guess go home? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you can see where I'm leading with this. It's like, okay, I can understand this dynamic, but I can also understand how there are problems with this dynamic, so, yeah, storytellers are 
just be advised some assembly is required. And also what, what Terry was talking about, uh, hazing, uh, they say that there's uh, this idea in the hollow ones that the strong survive, the weak fall to enemies and, and internal threats and so on. So we want to toughen up our members. So new members go through hazing. It's like, okay, as Terry said, it's really awful to treat people awful. I certainly understand that. But on another level, the Hollow Ones have said, we are the people who welcome in young people who have awakened and uh, have a, a, a difficult past or a very difficult present. I mean, these are problem people and often young, younger people. And so we, we welcome them in. It's like, okay, so we've got, say, uh, a teenage runaway who's had an abusive past They've got low self-esteem, they've, they've got their issues, and they need some help. And so they come into the hollow ones and say, hey, you're one of us. Now we're going to treat <laughs> <Yes>. you awful. <laughs> okay, it, it sounds to me like they would lose a lot of members. I'm just thinking, okay, 18-year-old me, I was not wearing black and hanging out in downtown San Francisco, but I was 18 once, I'm pretty sure. And if I had joined a group and they put me through hazing, 18-year-old me would say, these people don't like me. It might get worse. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Uh, maybe I'll have better luck somewhere else. And so it, it seems like these urban downtown hollow one groups, they put their young people through hazing. These young people have difficult pasts. They might lose those people. They're, they're, we might even have like uh, maybe suicide, maybe leaving town, maybe joining one of the traditions. I think the hollow ones wouldn't like it if their new recruits go off and join the Order of Hermes. As a storyteller, I would have to deal with that. No easy answer there. It repeatedly states in this book that hollow ones use personal paradigms. They make their own paradigm. Well, this is revised edition. All the mages have personal paradigms, every one of them. So to say this repeatedly in the book, it's like I, I think the editor needed to have a talk with the writers and say, well, I just want you to know that we say this in every revised edition book, so you know, be, be advised. Getting to the rotes sections, uh, there are a couple of uh, rotes specifically for dealing with wraiths, and I really like that. I thought they were well written, they were well thought out. I'm not a big wraith fan, so I'm not pulling them into my mage games very often, but I have to recognize that early first edition portrayals of the Hollow Ones have them uh, finding wraiths and, and talking with them and, and considering that to be a significant experience. And so to give some rotes to help players do that, I think that's really cool, and I think it's well done here. So hats off to the writers for that one. And the Oneiromancy section, I think people who have been listening to the show for a while know that I, I really like the idea of the Dream Realms and where you can run with that. And this was just a big letdown. Now, personally, I know it doesn't deal with the Maya and the Dream Realms and the Dream Lords. Okay, I get that. That's my personal baggage. But honestly, just on its own, the Oneiromancy section was two rotes. It was a disappointment. Both of those rotes I would put in front of my players and say, you can do this. And I'll bet you my players would read those and go, no, I don't want to do that. Maybe I don't want Oneiromancy at all. Maybe this just isn't cool because I don't like these rotes and there's only two of them. I think I'll go become a gaunt or you know something else, deal with rates. So that, that was just a letdown, even without my personal baggage. One of the things that a lot of revised books did better at was having a lot more low-level level rotes. Uh, there were a lot of things in here that required four dots of spirit or four dots of prime and so on. And that was just kind of mystifying to me. I figured out what my weird note to myself was. It wasn't stop technocrat. It was spot technocrat. So they have a rote called spot the man correspondence one life one matter one prime one that uh, can detect a technocrat to see if they have any implants and such. I am so divided on those 
Rotes like detect blank because to me, the fun of World of Darkness is you're never quite sure what another person is in the same way that I never let Entropy 1 detect the worm. And I don't even allow auras in my game for the same reason. I just think it puts too many cards on the table. So it was weird to have a spot technocrat. I really like the idea of, oh, you're looking for their implants. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. But as time goes forward, I, I really like the idea of a character encountering someone and being like, no, 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 this person's totally, totally a technocrat. And it just turns out they have a pacemaker. And I really, I really want that scene to happen. Yeah. Well, you were talking, I was also thinking of, of auras. There are different rotes for reading auras in the past. And I think a, a friend of the show, Charles Siegel, made a very good point that when you are a storyteller and you're running mage, you need to deal directly with the issue of aura mm-hmm. reading. Can your players do it? How actually does it work? And what is the aura of a uh, Nefandus whatever actually going to look like? You need, this is like one of the few specific rules points that a storyteller needs to get a hand on, handle on right mm-hmm. at the start. I like the idea of them. I'm a big fan of just using the mind sphere more or less and not representing it as an aura of being like, hey, you can get some emotional information on this person, but if they have a high subterfuge or they have a high willpower or they've done the work to kind of clear this away, you're not going to be able to get anything too useful. Because if you suggest that auras are a thing that you can read usefully, now you have players that are always doing that. Kind of like the person who is always yeah. using Ring of Truth. Beginning yeah. of every scene. You meet a new guy. Oh, I read him. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Chapter three, Hollow Personalities. We get information on three of the characters, two of which are members of the Vanguard, uh, Josefa de Esponsita, who was a one of the people that was suggested as causing one of the members of the Vanguard to fall to the Nefandi because she wanted to talk to one. And uh, instead of it being a nice chit chat, uh, they were they were ambushed. We get a character sheet for uh, Neville Sinclair Nevermore or Nevnev as he is known to his friends. And we also get a character sheet for Penny Dreadful. And I thought these were actually pretty good. It gives you a long background, and I am fine with these longer character sheets for characters that are so entwined with the history of the tradition. Unlike a lot of the character sheets we get, these uh, the founders are still around, and I think that's a really interesting angle that we get on the Hollowers. They're, they're a little bit older than a century old. They're tanks. Most of them have a Rite 5. I think all of them are masters. Yeah, of one or more spheres. These these are not people to be trifled with. And I, I thought that aspect was interesting because in a lot of cases we're like, this is revised. It's low power. The per- the the powerful person has an arete of three. And here it is like Neville Sinclair can go toe to toe with a lot of people. It also suggests that Neville has the ability to switch their avatar and soul to a new body. What does that mean? Like, do you need to kill the person first? Like... Are you now the soul and avatar and you kick out someone else's soul and avatar and now you look different or like whenever they bring up the idea of body transfer, I have a lot of questions because like if you look at the she in Changeling, it's like, oh no, we replaced the mortal soul with a face soul. I'm like, oh, okay, you, you destroy the soul of a mortal so that you have a house and you get to use it once. And then you have to burn down that house. And this, this raises similar questions that I, that I super wish were answered. We get some ideas of a Hollower Chronicle. And as Adam mentioned, of the groups, Hollowers seem more likely to be dealing with a all-Hollower group. They do give a few recommendations on how a Hollower can join a tradition 
cabal uh maybe the hollower was rescued or vice versa they may have personal goals that just align with what another cabal is doing they may have used a piece of divination to say join it i like that like it may sound super stupid but like literally a hollower reading uh tarot card and encountering a whole bunch of characters that match up with members of the major arcana mantles of the major arcana i think that's perfectly fine as long as you got something the all hollower group they recommend is an option for making a a very gritty and gothic thing which sounds reasonable and then we get the the house of horrors which is a portable horror house that investigates strange happenings as it goes i like this because it's kind of a kooky premise and also it gives a reason for the group to be out and engaged in the world and the fact that they are peripatetic uh suggests that the characters could reasonably run into them which i like it's an easy way to jam it into whatever city and answers the question of what if you were potent mages that could go anywhere and still seemingly not actually do anything um, because <laughs> we, we get about a, a bunch of weird stories that you're like, well, if you have magic, shouldn't you be able to deal with this? I don't know. And that leads us to the their views on other groups, which are not very surprising. There's this one line where that caused a certain amount of dread in me where they said, we're kind of a combination of the Cult of Ecstasy, the Acoustic Brotherhood with a pinch of dream speakers and a shake of Urbana. Add in a, team sp- a teaspoon of the Euthanatoy and bake at 350 degrees for a couple of hours until crispy and blackened. Uh, that caused dread in me for two reasons. One, I am someone who bakes a lot and I have no recipes that involve baking something at 350 for several hours. That was just... that. Uh, that was just terrifying to me. And also, whenever you say, hey, we're basically these other guys, it's always like, okay, then why do you exist? <laughs> and, and I get you can have a unique combination of it, but like, I, I could picture a game where the Hollowers are a cross-tradition group, and they do wind up just being in a whole bunch of other traditions, uh, kind of like what we went over when we talked about Guide to the Traditions. We then get the character templates, and I found the character templates to be absolutely infuriating because there are a number of characters that have sphere ratings higher than their Arite. All of them had three, had one sphere at three, one sphere at two, and one sphere at one. If your templates don't fit the rules of your game, that annoys the heck out of me. Also, there are the Gemini twins. Does one person play both? Or do you need another person to do it? And then you're constantly describing how you're making out with this other character. Other ones are perfectly fine. We get some lovely Leaf Jones art. This this one is pretty high on the visible nipple spectrum in terms of character art. And we also get the Reality Warrior, which really just feels like a virtual adept with larger boots. This character is also depicted with a cell phone attached to their boot. And if you introduce cell phones into the hollower worldview, it fundamentally changes because you no longer need to have the uh, hollower underground incurring massive amounts of paradox to move information around. You can text someone. We get an epilogue, which I'm not sure what actually was happening in it. And then we get some references. Two of the comic books listed are The Invisibles and Promethea, Visibles by Grant Morrison, and... Promethea by Alan Moore. Sometime in the vague future, I'm going to do an episode where I and a guest read those, and then maybe we talk about comic book inspirations, those inspirations, and whether or not they're applicable to Mage. I just appreciated that The Invisibles and Promethea pop up in a bunch of places, and this was a book that had both. The Invisibles is one of the, it's in like the top three or the top four of uh, most referenced work in a uh, recommended reading list of mage books. So yeah, The Invisibles, there's, there's a lot of 
a lot of notes for that, a lot of people wanting to bring Mage fans' attention to it. But uh, when discussing Chapter 3, I thought it was very odd how throughout this entire book we have uh, different in-character and out-of-character passages saying that Hollow Ones are romantics with a capital R, they're all about the legends, uh, every tradition book has a legend section except this one. I'm going to lay this at the feet of editor John Chambers. Something happened here. I don't know what, but that was kind of weird. We've got the backstory for Penny's familiar has now changed. Uh, in the early days, Penny Dreadful, she got her familiar, a black cat, a Mephistopheles that can talk. She got it by raiding a Nefondus lair, and the familiar was there and said, Hey, I'm going to jump in your bag. Let's get out of here. Okay. And that was how she got her familiar. Now it's it's a totally different story there. So I, I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but you know, I was a longtime mage fan. I thought that was, that was a little odd uh, how they changed that one. Um, the section on others in the world of darkness, you know, we, we talk about vampires, we talk about werewolves and what do we think about them, etc. It was kind of disappointing. Now, you know, I can't compare everything to Malcolm Shepard's Others section because he was, he was quite good. But, but still, even compared to other tradition books, this was, it was dull. There, there wasn't a lot going on there. And so I, I'd like to see a little more creativity there. Uh, when getting to the templates, uh, two things stand out. Terry mentioned the Gemini twins, and yeah, I support what he said, but on another note, two mages with one avatar? I think that's the first time I've heard of that idea. I mean, is that a misunderstanding on the parts of the mages, or is that... I mean, they actually have a passage in there saying, are we misunderstanding this? No, to, to think about it another way would make even less sense, so we probably have this right. And I was reading that going, can two mages have one avatar, and how does that work at the game table? That's... That is quite a new idea for me. I'm, I'm not sure what to think of that. And uh, another thing I saw, most of the templates are, uh, the, the authors of this book were thinking, what are books and movies that Hollow Ones might enjoy if they were real? Okay, let's go to that author or that director and let's take a, a typical character out of that and we'll make it a template in this book. It's like, okay, we've got a Clive Barker. We've got somebody from li a lot like Neo in The Matrix and you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these other characters. And it's like, World of Darkness favorite authors showcase as templates. It's like, I'm not sure if that's a cool idea or really, really dumb. I'm going to have to think about that one. But that is, it gets weird points. I'll, I'll give it weird points, certainly. Now, that was a little out there. I, but I, yeah, I but, think that's uh, a super useful exercise because I think a lot of first-time mage players come to the table saying, hey, I have an idea of a character in my head. How can I get something close to that? one of the problems that you run with is you can be like 5% of Neo. You can't be Neo out of the gate. So I feel like it, it both gives you a touchstone, but also immediately leads to frustration where you're like, I'm Neo. I want to fly. You, you, you can't do that. You don't have forces yet. Also that ritual would take hours and you may run out of successes midway through your flight. So you need to work on that a little bit more. And you're like, Oh, okay. So I'm in no way like Neo, except for the trench coat. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Yeah, and there's also the, the popular DC Comics character, John Constantine. It's like, we've got John Constantine, but not John Constantine. It's like, uh, okay, how do, how do, okay, that's a little weird. We've got typical Charles Dickens character. It's like, uh, all right, that's something different. Okay, what do I think of this? So it was just a very weird exercise. I mean, I, it gets points for, for creativity, but then, you know, if, if one of my players actually said, hey, I'm Charles Dickens character, I'm like, Mm, I don't know. Should we talk about yeah. this? <laughs> uh, and what did you think about the book overall? I thought it was interesting how 
it is called tradition book hollow one. And of course, you know, we've said in the past, how do you define tradition? Is it uppercase T or lowercase T? And so it's like, okay, I'd like to see how this book explains that. This book did not address that topic at all. It didn't even touch it with a 10-foot pole. It's like, are we a craft? Are we an orphan group? Are we a tradition? Let's just not mention that at all. It's like, oh, come on, in 100 pages, maybe we could get some insight on that. I mean, what is the revised edition point of view on that? I don't know. It seems reasonable to me how the older hollow ones hold a lot of influence, even if they don't have loud reputations. I, th I think that was interesting, and I could I could deal with that as a storyteller, but it, it does fly in the face of the revised edition idea that, hey, the, the old masters are gone, and now the young ones are making a difference. Like, well, not with the mm -hmm. hollow ones. With the hollow ones, the old masters are here, and if you upset them, there will be consequences. So that's kind of, you know, marching to their own drum, you might say, within the context of revised edition. And nobody told the Hollow Ones that the Ascension War is over, apparently, because there are multiple references in this book of the, technoc the technocracy are totally our enemies. We fight against the technocracy. We'll beat them someday. I mean, there are multiple cliques that devote their time to the goal of directly fighting the technocracy. So it's like, okay, the Ascension War is over in revised edition, but nobody told the Hollow Ones. They are totally yeah. <laughs> into it. What is it with revised edition and coffee shops? I mean, it's not just this book. There are so many books in revised edition that are like totally all about the coffee shop. And we have rotes that are very appropriate to use in coffee shops. We have in-character fiction that is frequently in coffee shops. I sometimes think we should call this Mage the Caffeinating or something. I mean, revised edition authors, they know their coffee shops. And I, as, as a Mage fan, I've never been in a lot of coffee shops. If, if my players say we all go to a coffee shop, I'd be like, ooh, um, can you guys help me out? I, I don't know a lot about coffee shops. So maybe that's why I don't run revised edition all that often. <laughs> but uh, Oh, and one final point. The uh, previous books, uh, Orphan Survival Guide and Outcasts, they gave me more specific historical and background information for portraying the Hollow Ones, like, you know, how did we get to here? And, you know, some interesting, cool stuff that I'd actually like to deal with, and there just wasn't a lot here. So if I'm going to use Hollow Ones in a game and I want to pull out any points of, you know, five years ago we did this or 100 years ago we were influenced by this, I would go to those old books and I would get it and I'd be happy, but I'm not going to get it in this book. Uh, one of the things that we don't often talk about heavily is is the art. And I thought that the combination of Vince Locke and Larry McDougall was great. Kind of this combination of this etching style, uh, this almost woodcut way of showing things with, with Larry McDougall's watercolor. I thought even though in a lot of cases it was somewhat spare, was quite striking. The The character on page 10, it appears to be a, a young girl who's just reading in a cemetery happily, I thought evoked the hollower mood quite well. I think the character portraits throughout chapter one uh, were, were pretty well rendered. So artistically, I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. It just so happens that I like uh, McDougal and, and Locke. So yeah, I, I guess my, my overall thought on the book was this, it didn't feel like it fulfilled the needs of a tradition book. It was, it was very good on mood and evocation. I also like the asides where they're like, hey, here's something that possibly happened in this character's background. And I like the idea that it included those kind of rumors. I think that could have been developed further to give proper plot ideas. Uh, the lack of legends, as Adam says, is kind of a thing. And a lot of the legends for other groups are pretty straightforward where you're like, oh, yeah, the Celestial Chorus is looking for the Temple of the Sun. Yeah, we've heard of the Temple of the Sun before. But what, what does a hollower one uh, legend look like? 
And I think that's something where it could give a lot of aid. It felt like a fiction piece that someone decided to drop some exposition into to try and explain what it was. I also feel like they kind of failed the hollowers in dealing with the paradox of we believe in self-expression and individuality, yet we ultimately all wind up looking the same. And saying that people, hollowers that try and get along with other hollowers or just posers or something like that, I think makes it very hard to use the group, especially at a gaming table, because it's very quickly going to descend into acrimony. I liked the previous presentation that hollowers were kind of fiercely protective of their cliques. But once you're on the inside, you're on the inside. They would kind of like die for one another. The bringing in the other lines I thought was an interesting choice. Um, I'm still not quite sure how I feel about the Wraith stuff. I like that we're getting some crossover information. And as Old World of Darkness fans, we're kind of starved for that. Even the books that are purportedly crossover don't actually give us like a lot of crossover information. It's just two game lines in one book more so than anything else. It also shows a very Generation X notion of what it is to be gothic. They talk about selling out versus uh, what you have to do to survive. And that notion of selling out has very much changed over the years. Um, I very much want to see an update to the Hollower as I want to see an update to the other traditions. But just the fact that the Hollowers are so new and so tied seemingly to the gestalt of the 90s makes it so that it goes staler faster in the same way that it is hard to keep up to date if you are a technomancer to be like, what is essentially a modern cell phone was a two or three point wonder in the first Virtual Adept book. So how, how do you stay up to date on that? That's something that most, I think, storytellers would be able to kind of figure out. But for the Hollowers, that leaves me bereft with the idea of the pastel goth and so on. How would that be? Uh, folded into it. So I, I look forward to hopefully getting that. It was a lot of words. It was reasonably well written. I just wish there were more made stuff in it. I just wish there was uh, there were more systems and more yeah. actionable stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, if this if this had been the size of a first edition tradition book, I think it could have been. Uh, I think it would have been great. It didn't necessarily. There were a lot of words. It didn't necessarily feel wordy. Like the prose wasn't purple or overwrought or anything like that. It was just kind of thin on the ground to me for for the made stuff. I did like the fact that they broke it up between outlook and group. Um, that you could be a part of a elemental revolutionary clique. And I wish more groups did that, where they're like, hey, this is how we practice our magic, but this is our outlook on how we think we should deal with the world at large or something like that. And that is a framework that eventually in New World of Darkness we get with the X and the Y splats, one being this is who you are, this being this is what you think. And I think it would be awesome to see that for all the other traditions kind of in the same level of formality. But those are those are my thoughts about the book. Yeah. Well, do you have a closing quote for us? I do. And this is talking about why they all dress in black and so on. And the statement is, some call it rebellion, others call it individualism. Nonconformity via a particularly macabre form of conformity. Whatever. Okay. At least at least they, they nodded it. We got a little bit of lampshading. The largest paradox effect in the book, to me, is the fact that the lead character is working part-time as a dishwasher and is able to afford their own apartment. How? There, there's something vulgar going on there. Yeah, the Paradox Backlash is going to yep. be pretty ugly when it happens. <laughs> uh, so what are we reading next? Next we are reading the Mage Storyteller's Handbook, which is going to be a bit of a stretch for us because the first two editions had a Storyteller's Guide, but now we've got a Storyteller's Handbook. We're going to have to get into that. Why, why is one a guide and one a handbook? So look forward it's, to that. It's a everybody. handful, though. It's, it's not a small book. That's a that's what is technically known as a chunker. Yeah, 212 page hardback, and there's six chapters. There's plenty to mm-hmm. discuss. 
Unless I'm forgetting something, you want to take us out, Adam? Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of us, it makes us much more visible in their searches. So please consider that. If you can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast, we've got plenty to say to you there. A lot of updates, a lot of fun conversations. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. Uh, there you can listen to past episodes, see in which order they came out, and read the complete show notes that we prepare for you, complete with uh, links for you to follow. Well, this episode is thanks to executive producers John Magnuson, Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Michael Parker, Christopher Phillips, Ilara J. Sunsern, Bryce Perry, William Martin, John Horton, William Connolly, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Katz, Jenna F., Andrew Edelstein, Chris Sack, Joshua Golden, Dan Svensson, Andy, Neil Patterson, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Go change the world. Bye.